congregation, boys and girls, maybe you wonder sometimes, what do we mean by reflection? Why is the service, the second service on the Sunday that the Lord's Supper is administered, why do we call that a reflection sermon? Well, reflection means to think about, to reflect upon. So the whole purpose of this evening service is to think about what transpired here in this morning hour. And why did our forefathers establish that very helpful and profitable tradition? For the simple reason that they realized that the administration of the Lord's Supper is such a wondrous event, has such profound implications for the people of God that it would be to our benefit to reflect upon it after it has transpired so that we may gain the full benefit of that which has been communicated to us visibly by means of the Lord's Supper. But not only that, that our reflection upon what Christ has been pleased to communicate to us about Himself about His glorious person, about what He has accomplished to secure our redemption, that that would stimulate us to live our life for Him. Romans 12 begins with these wonderful words that in light of all that Paul has explained in chapters 1 through 11, he said, therefore, you should now offer yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice to Him. In other words, we should wholeheartedly desire to live unto Him, the One who gave Himself for us, to be a living sacrifice for the Savior who gave Himself as a sacrifice in order to secure our redemption. And so tonight we hope to do that by way of our text that you will find in the passage we read, Philippians 1, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul makes this wonderful confession. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so as we consider Paul's remarkable profession, first of all, we will consider the present focus of that confession. For me to live, for me to live now, is Christ. Secondly, the future anticipation of that confession. Not only is it for me to live is Christ, but ultimately because Christ is my all in all, therefore to die is gain. Dying will be to my everlasting gain. And thirdly, the personal nature of that confession. It doesn't merely say to live is Christ and to die is gain. No, he says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so the present focus of that confession the future anticipation of that confession, and the personal nature of that confession. 
We know that the letter to the Philippians is one of the so-called prison epistles. Paul had been imprisoned by the Roman Empire. And how remarkable it is that God used that perplexing providence that seemed to limit the usefulness of his servant who was not able to go out and preach. God used that providence to make his servant useful to the church today. Because in that prison cell, he wrote several epistles, the letter to the Philippians being one of them. And it's what's remarkable about that letter, and if you have the time, I would encourage you to search this out yourself, that in every single chapter, joy is the dominant theme. Now, that's remarkable, because there was no reason for the apostle to be joyful. And the prisons today are like luxury hotels compared to the prisons of those days. But remarkably, even though he was in prison, even though he was in bonds, Paul knew that these were the bonds of his master. And even in that prison cell, Paul did not lose sight of his master. He did not lose sight of the promises of God's word. This is the same Paul, as you know, when he was cast into that dungeon in Philippi was able to worship God in the middle of the night together with Silas. When they were in pain and discomfort, they worshipped God. They did not lose sight of God and of His promises, even though nothing made sense to them at that moment. And you see, boys and girls, congregation, and you can see that the true happiness of God's children is a happiness that is not defined by happenings. Our word happy is derived from the same root word from, from happening. And so how do the ungodly, how does the world define happiness? Well, happiness is defined by what happens to you. And when what happens to you is favorable, people will be happy. And when that which happens is unfavorable, people are wishing that what was happening would be unhappening, and therefore they are unhappy. But the happiness of Scripture, the true happiness, the happiness that Paul experienced in his prison cell is a happiness that is not defined by happenings but it's a happiness that is rooted in God Himself. It's a happiness that is rooted in Christ. And so Paul was able to write this wonderful epistle to the Philippians, a congregation that meant so much to him, a congregation he loved very dearly. Boys and girls, what do you think? Why, why was the congregation of Philippi so special to him? Do you know why? Remember, that was the first Christian congregation on the continent of Europe. Before Paul had come there, that whole continent of Europe in which we all have our roots dwelt in utter spiritual darkness. You know that the Apostle Paul received that amazing vision. 
he wanted to continue his ministry in Asia Minor. And he went in this direction, and the Spirit said no. He went in that direction, the Spirit said no. And again, the Spirit hindered him, not because there were no sinners to be saved in Asia Minor. There certainly were. But it was God's sovereign purpose that his servant would cross over into Macedonia to heed that call of the Macedonian man, come over and help us. And what happened there is remarkable congregation. Because we today, we are the beneficiaries of what happened there. We are the beneficiaries of what began in the congregation of Philippi. Because from Philippi, the gospel went forth until it went all across Europe. And from Europe, it has come to North America and has reached us. So what seemed a rather minor event in Paul's missionary journeys was of profound and eternal significance. When God sent his servant to go to Macedonia, God knew that the outcome of that ultimately would be the salvation of a multitude that no one can number who dwelt on the continent of Europe. And we are the beneficiaries of that today. And so as he writes this letter here in the jail cell in Rome, he fully expected to be executed. Turns out later that he was set free one more time, but he fully expected to be executed. And his faith was so strong that he writes in verse 19, For I know that this, my imprisonment, my pending execution, that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul had such confidence in his Savior he said, if this is what happens to me, if this means the end of my journey, I am convinced that this will be to my ultimate benefit, to my ultimate salvation. According, he says in verse 20, to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Oh, here is the confession of a seasoned child of God. He had so much confidence in his Savior that he believed wholeheartedly that everything, even his imprisonment, even if he were to be beheaded, that all things would work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, so Paul is saying he had so much confidence, he said, if I'm going to die, it will be to Christ's glory. If I'm allowed to live, it will be to Christ's glory. But one thing I am certain of, that the Christ to whom I belong, the Christ who owns me, the Christ whose property I am, that he shall be magnified, whether by life or by death. And then comes this wonderful confession, our wonderful text. Why did he say this? For, in other words, now he gives the reason why he makes this bold statement. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And he actually said what he's saying here again. Whether I live, it will be for Christ's sake. Whether I die, it will be for Christ's sake. But whether I live or whether I die, I am living unto Christ. Congregation, what a remarkable confession that is. For me to live is Christ. Now, in your Bible, if you look in your Bibles, you will notice that the word is is in uh, cursive, print. That means it's not in the original text. The same with the second is. So the original text actually reads this. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. So what, 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 what that emphasizes, that Christ in every way was the substance of the apostle's life. For me to live is Christ. I want to highlight that in three different ways. So what Paul is saying, first of all, he is saying, this Christ whom I may serve, this Christ, he is the sum and substance of my spiritual life. He is the foundation of my spiritual life. But secondly, this Christ, and I think this is what he mostly have in mind, not only is he the foundation of my spiritual life, but he is the great focus of my spiritual life. My whole life is focused on him. My whole life revolves around him. Christ is my life. He is the one for whom I live. He is the one for whom I do all these things. Oh, Paul allegedly is to have said at the very end of his journey to his faithful companion, Luke. He said, Luke, everything I've done, I've done for Christ. What a remarkable statement. So Christ the foundation of a spiritual life, the sum and substance of it, Christ, the focus of a spiritual life, and Christ also the only hope and expectation of his spiritual life. Now, boys and girls, if you are old enough to take notes, let me just say it a little different, give you three words that all start with an F. That'd be easy for you to remember. Christ is the foundation of his life, Christ is the focus of his life, and Christ is the fountain of his spiritual life. Let me just briefly address all three of them. Oh, for me, to live is Christ. Oh, that meant that for Paul, Christ and Christ alone was the sole foundation of his hope. That's exactly the goal of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Christ wants to teach us also by the repeated administration of the Lord's Supper. Oh, by means of that sacrament, He time and again compels us to look at those visible signs and to remind us, there is the foundation of your hope. The foundation of your hope is in what I have accomplished on your behalf. The foundation of your salvation is that I, I, your Savior, that I was wounded for your transgressions and I was bruised for your iniquities. 
I paid the full penalty for your sins. I shed my blood for your sake to secure your complete redemption. You know that this was not always true in the life of the Apostle Paul. There was a time that for him to live was Moses. There was a time when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There was a time that he believed that his righteousness before God was flawless. There was a time that he thought highly of himself. All of that changed when the risen Christ met him on the way to Damascus. All of that changed when he dwelt there for three days without eating and drinking. When God stripped him of all of his imaginary righteousness where God confronted him with who he really was. And then comes the wonderful ministry of the gospel. Oh, Ananias was used by God to communicate that precious gospel to the apostle Paul. And that so profoundly impacted him that the moment his eyes are restored, the moment he gets out of that house on the street that was called Straight, we say that in straightway, straightway he preached Christ. In the same letter to the Philippians, he writes in chapter 3, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Oh, Paul had to lose so much. As a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he had to lose so much. But he lost it all. And he said, all of that which I so valued, it, it became like manure to me, like dung, like garbage. I realized that all of that righteousness that I thought I possessed was of no value in the sight of God. And his whole life was refocused on Christ. And then he realized that Christ alone was the foundation of his hope. Christ was the one who now dwelt in him. Christ was the one who now governed him. Christ had become his all and in all. Luther later said, and I'm sure Paul would have agreed, he has said, Christ, Christ is my life. Galatians 2.20, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In Colossians 3, verse 4, he says it himself, Christ is our life. From that day forward, Paul was a man who was preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. O congregation, have you learned that lesson as well? Have you been reminded again in this morning hour that your only hope is in the finished work of Christ? Has Christ become the sole foundation of your hope? Oh, it is sweet when we may experience the preciousness of the gospel. But how as sweet as those experiences may be, and I do not want to discount them in any way, it can ultimately not be the resting place for our soul. And that's why we are commanded to do this in remembrance of me. Oh, can you say, can you echo the words of Paul? Can you echo the words of Luther? 
Christ. Christ is my life. Christ is the sum and substance of my spiritual life. But secondly, and most importantly, when he says for me to live is Christ, he's saying Christ is my focal point. Christ is the one for whom I live. Everything I do is all for him. My whole life is focused on him for me to live is Christ. That means that the desire of the Apostle Paul was that he would be like Christ. In other words, he's saying Christ is the example that's held before us. That's the desire of my soul. My, my desire is that I may live in such a way that my life begins to resemble him. He is the model that I seek to emulate. He is the one who I desire to be like. And again, that's so consistent with the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who dwells in the heart of every believer. And that Spirit is always at work, always at work to direct us and to redirect us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the work of that Spirit is to glorify Christ. The work of that Spirit is to so work in us that we become conformed to the image of Christ. And so that earnest desire that Paul expresses here, for me to live as Christ, for me is to live my life for Him, for me it is to be like Him, for me to live is that my life would begin to resemble His life. Ah, you see, that's because of the Spirit of Christ who dwelt in him. That's why Paul expressed that yearning in, in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, that I may know him, that I may know more of him. What a remarkable petition of a man who knew more of Christ than anyone that has ever walked on the face of the earth. And yet he realized how little he yet knew of him. And he desired to know more of him. Is that how you came to the Lord's table this morning? Is that your desire? Is that your deepest desire? Is that question was placed before you? If you were asked, do you desire to know more of Christ? For a true Christian will never claim that he knows all there is to be known about Christ. A true Christian will realize that our knowledge of him is still so primitive. A true Christian will understand why Paul talks about seeing through a glass darkly. A true Christian realizes that the riches that are to be found in Christ, they are unsearchable riches. Oh, those riches are such that it will take an, a never-ending eternity to adore the riches that are to be found in Christ. And Paul realized that. And his, but what he had learned, and, I, and I, I am sure that's true for every true Christian, what he had learned about Christ was so precious and was so sweet that his yearning was, oh Lord, I long to know more of him. 
Oh, that I might know more of him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And so Paul was a man of whom we can truly say he was preoccupied with Christ. My dear congregation, that's the desire of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. He wants you to be preoccupied with Christ. He wants Christ to be the overarching shadow over your life. He wants Christ to penetrate every fiber of your being. His goal is to glorify Christ, that in everything you do, even as you carry out your daily occupation, that it would be your confession with the Apostle Paul, oh, for me, to live is Christ. For me to live is to, to be like Christ and to manifest that even in my life. And that's why we keep referencing, and I will preach on that in the future, that's why abiding in Christ, that's one of the purpose of the Lord's Supper, is to facilitate this abiding in Christ. Because that's the secret of the spiritual life. Here was a man who abode in Christ. Here was a man who lived out of Christ every day. Here is a man who, like Enoch and Noah, we can truly say Paul was a man who walked with Christ. His whole life was focused on Christ. Now, let me quickly add, you don't have to be a missionary to make this confession. Now, this should be true in every walk of life, in your workplace, in home, in the incredible responsible task of being a homemaker. It should be the desire of every godly homemaker to live, to be able to say, for me, to live is Christ. To be a Christ-like wife. To be a Christ-like mother. To be a Christ-like husband. To be a Christ-like employer. To be a Christ-like employee. Whatever your place and function may be in life. This is what should be the fruit of what happened this morning. That because of what we experienced, because we experienced the amazing love of Christ who came so near to us, who expressed his desire to fellowship with us, to commune with us, to nourish us, oh, our desire should be, oh, for me, to live is to live for that Christ. And of course, what Christ promises in John 15, and everything we need to live as such a life that focuses on Him, such a life that draws out of Him, everything we lack is to be found in Him. That's why He says, abide in me, and I in you. And when you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That's why He cried out on, uh, on, on the great feast in John 7. He said, if any man thirst." Let him come unto me and drink. Oh, do you thirst for more communion with God? Do you thirst for 
spiritual growth? Do you thirst? Do you, do you thirst for a life that honors Christ? Oh, he says, come. If any man thirst, if any man's heart pants after God as a heart pants after the water brooks, oh, if any man thirst, oh, let him come to me and drink. And he that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of water. For me to live is Christ. He is the foundation of my life. He is the focus of my life. But he's also the fountain out of which everything flows. Oh, what a comfort that is also for the Christian. Because that means that in spite of all of our struggles, and we will struggle until our dying day, in spite of that ongoing battle against a three-headed enemy, in spite of all that happens in our lives that makes us groan with the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the Lord's Supper is designed to make us refocus again on Him. And to be able to say that in spite of who I remain in myself, that's the beauty of that 26th verse of Romans 7, on the one hand, the apostle, the apostle Paul of all people, the man who speaks here, he groans, he groans about his indwelling corruption. And he says, the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would that I do. But then he, then he cries out in holy joy and ecstasy, but I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's what Paul was learning. And even... God used the, the painful awareness of who he remained in himself. God used that so that he increasingly would look outside of himself, that increasingly he would lean upon Christ, that increasingly he would abide in him. That's why the words of 1 Corinthians 1.30 are so beautiful, also in connection with this passage, when again the same Apostle Paul says, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What a beautiful statement that is about Christ. And again, Paul teaches the very same thing. He's saying, Christ has done it all, dear believer. Everything you need is to be found in Him. And so He has made wisdom unto an ignorant people. He has made righteousness to a people that remain sinful in themselves. He has made sanctification for a people that in themselves often find so much unholiness. He has made redemption. He has made everything. He has merited a complete salvation, a, a salvation that encompasses every need of your soul. And that's been set before us again also in this morning hour. Oh, for me to live is Christ. Oh, my dear congregation, oh, search your own soul as we reflect this morning. Can you say this in some measure? 
I'm not saying that you should compare yourself to the Apostle Paul. He was a, a man extraordinarily taught of God and called to an extraordinary task. But what every believer has in common with this Apostle Paul is that we love his appearing. That's why he writes in several times and he puts himself at the same level when he addresses the Christian and he says, those who, like myself, who love his appearing. Oh, can you say, in spite of who I am and remain in myself, Lord, thou knowest this is my desire. My heart yearns after this Christ. My desire is to know more of Him. My desire is to be more like Him. My desire is that this Christ would be the great focus of my life. And that's why he could continue and say, and for me, to die is gain. You see, that those two are inseparably connected because death itself is God's judgment upon sin. Death itself remains the last enemy of God's children. There's not a believer in the world that has not had moments when they thought about their impending death that fear would not fill their hearts. Because death, of course, itself is so unnatural. The wages of sin is death. And yet what Paul confesses here is true for every believer who, like him, loves the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. For the believer, his death will be gain. Then death is an enemy that has been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the famous resurrection chapter, that's why the Apostle Paul could say so boldly, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that the reason why sometimes believers are fearful of death is because we're not walking with the Savior, or our walk with Him is so irregular and so intermittent that we are not abiding in Him, that we are not abiding in Him daily. Because the more we abide in Him, the closer we live to Him, the more we live out of Him, the more we understand that death ultimately will be our gain. Oh, what a beautiful thing. It's one thing to say that when you sit in your lazy boy. But he said it in a prison cell. He said it with the sword of death hanging over his head. He knew that any moment the door of his cell could open and the prisoners could take him out to be executed. But he said, if that happens, Christ will be magnified in my body because for me to live is Christ and therefore to die is gain. It's actually one of the marks of how much we have grown in grace how much we have grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as to how we view our impending death. And I realize that God gives grace to die when that moment comes. 
And yet, if we are in the right place, if we live near to Christ, if we live in fellowship with Him, there cannot be but an intense yearning in our soul, an intense desire at times to be delivered from the body of this death, an intense desire to be with Him. And he says that later. He says in verse 23, after he said, you know, for your benefit, I know I should still remain here. But he says, I'm in a strait between betwixt two. I'm being torn, he said, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And that's what the Lord's Supper should do. It should stimulate in us a desire to be with that Christ. And true spiritual growth will manifest itself in a growing desire to be delivered from the body of this death and to be with Him forever. And so the sanctified Christian is someone who anticipates that moment. And first of all, I want to define that gain in negative terms. Because why is death, why is it gain for the Christian? Because death means for the Christian that we will finally be delivered from our sinful nature. That finally we will be done with sin. It's just like with a, a cancer patient. When does the cancer finally die? When the person dies. Then the cancer finally dies. And so God's children, they deal with that, that residual cancer of sin within them. But when you die, dear believer, when we die in the Lord, when we die in Christ, we will be done with sin forever. Oh, what an unspeakable thing that is. And I know that most believers, we cannot even fathom what that will be to look forward to a, a sinless future. Oh, to die means it will be an end to all the grief and sorrow of this life, to be delivered forever from this veil of tears. Oh, for the believer to die means we shall be delivered from those thorns in the flesh, those thorns that are there by divine appointment to sanctify us, as was true with the Apostle Paul. Oh, for the believer to die means that I will finally be delivered also from my, my unbelieving heart. Finally to be delivered from that wretched tendency in the life of the believer to be unbelieving. That's why, the, that's why Jesus rebuked Thomas. He said, stop being unbelieving. Oh, that wretched tendency that in spite of all the blessings we have enjoyed, that we are still so prone to suspecting God and His motives, to question His doings, to be delivered from all of that. Oh, to die means to be delivered from all of those wretched spiritual frames of all coldness, prayerlessness, all those things that grieve us. And to face a future where God will never have to hide His countenance anymore. 
All of that is gained when the believer breathes his last breath. But now the positive, oh, the positive far exceeds the negative. Oh, to be with Christ is far better. And that says it all. That, that says that Paul understood that what makes heaven so desirable to the Christian is not because for heaven's sake, not because of all the blessings that the godly will enjoy there, but what makes heaven heaven is Christ. To be with Christ, he says, which is far better. As you know, that was the, co the phrase coined by the godly Samuel Rutherford when he really echoes the word of God when he says, Christ is heaven's heaven. And when Jesus prays in his intercessory prayer in John 17, when he prays, he says, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me, that they may be where I am, and that they may behold my glory. That's what Paul yearned for. That's what he desired. That's why he said to be with Christ is far better. Oh, what a blessed future awaits the believer. A future in which we will uninterruptedly behold the countenance of God in Christ. That's the glory of heaven. That's the glory of Emmanuel's land. Oh, he, Emmanuel, will forever dwell in the midst of his people. He will forever be the revelation of the Father. He will forever be the one in whom we know the Father. He will forever be the one in whom we will see the glory of the Father. That's why David wrote in Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. Even Job in the midst of all his suffering, he said in Job 19, 26, In my flesh I shall see God. Oh, to think that there's a future where we will never, never lose sight of him again. A future where we will forever behold him. We will forever be in his presence. A future of everlasting satisfaction and yet everlasting increase. Revelation 7, verse 16 and 17, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them to silence their hunger and shall lead them unto fountains of living water to quench their thirst. And yet the language is such that and that's the mystery of heaven. There will be everlasting satisfaction and an everlasting desire for more. That's what Christ will do. He will forever, dear believer, he will forever be your prophet, priest, and king. Those offices are eternal. As our prophet, he will forever teach us more about his Father. As our prophet... He will forever lead us deeper and deeper into the heart of a triune God, a journey that will never end. As our priest, 
He will forever lead us in the worship of the Father. As our priest, he will forever keep us in unbroken fellowship with the Father because that's the essence of his priesthood. And as our king, he will forever govern us. And so through him, God's people will spend an eternity loving God in Christ. First of all, knowing God in Christ. Loving God in Christ. Serving God in Christ. A future in which we will be perfectly conformed to Christ. Oh, what a, what a blessed prospect that is. That's what John meant, he says. When that day comes, we will see him and we will be like him. That's why heaven will be a place where God also delights himself in his redeemed people. Why? Because God will see in his redeemed people the perfect reflection of the glory of his only begotten Son. That's the future that awaits the people of God. We are chosen in Christ to become like unto Christ. Oh, a future of everlasting fellowship with a triune God in Christ. Oh, David anticipated that in Psalm 43, verse 4, when he says, Then will I go to the altar of God unto God my exceeding joy. Therefore, he could say in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And of course, I cannot unpack this now, but not only will it be to the gain of God's people, it is to God's everlasting gain. It all originates with Him. This people have I formed for myself, and they shall show forth my glory. It will be to the everlasting gain of God to bring His people home and to have them dwell with Him forever. That's the gain of God's children. And finally, I have to be brief here. It's so personal. He says, for me to live is Christ. Congregation, can you say that? Boys and girls, what does it mean for you to live? Many people would say, for me to live is to get everything out of this life. For millions of people, for millions of people today, for them to live was to watch the Super Bowl. This incredible event of mass idolatry for me to live is to enjoy the pleasures of this life. To acquire everything this world has to offer. And in the end, it will be like a soap bubble. It will be nothing. Because we came into the world with nothing and we will go out with nothing. If you were to lose everything, if tomorrow our economy would utterly collapse and everything in the bank would just vanish up in smoke, if you had nothing left, if you lost all of your material possessions, would you still be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ? Because when you have Christ, you have everything. That's why a life without Christ 
is ultimately a wasted life. It's a life that is filled with trivial pursuit. That's a Christless life. Oh, for me. Oh, I'm sure that Paul never got over it. That he could say this. He who had persecuted the church of God. He who called himself the chief of sinners. And if by the grace of God you were able to take your place this morning at this table. And if by the grace of God you can in some measure echo the words of Paul. Oh, for me to live is this Christ as well. It's only, it's only because of his eternal sovereign initiative towards you. That's why Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 12, I follow after, he says, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I want to pursue the very purpose for which he pursued me. It's because of what he did for me that I desire now to live for him. And so he writes in Romans 14, verse 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. O congregation, this is the litmus test of who we really are. We need to examine ourselves. Even those who could not come to Lord's table. We need to examine ourselves. What is your life? What are you living for? Because only if you can say in some measure for me to live is Christ. Christ alone is the foundation of my hope. Christ alone is the focus of my life. Christ alone is the fountain of my life. Only then do you have a future. Because to die without this Christ will mean everlasting loss. And all the things you have enjoyed in this life, all of the temporal blessings you have enjoyed in this life, all of that will be of no avail. That's why Jesus said, what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world? When Jeff Bezos dies, when Elon Musk dies, he will go to the grave. The way he was born, with nothing. Nothing. Unless he finds Christ. And so let us go homeward. And let us examine ourselves in light of this passage. If you've never come to this Christ, oh, this Christ is still preached to you. This Christ still proffers to you peace and pardon. This Christ offers life to sinners who are destined to perish forever without him. This is the Christ who will by no means cast out those that come to him. This is the Christ who said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life.
And so, my dear congregation, dear boys and girls, go home and reflect on this truth. What does Christ mean to you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before thee and we give thee humble thanks that we could be here for the second time today. And Lord, we have heard the confession of thy servant and may we take it to heart. Lord, we cannot even begin to compare ourselves to this extraordinary, Christ-centered, Christ-focused man. And yet, Lord, for us, there needs to be but one name given under heaven. Oh, we pray that in some measure we would be able to stammer with him. For me also, to live is Christ. Christ alone is my all in all. Oh, that may that be the confession of every person that partook of the Lord's table. We pray for those who are yet without Christ. For we know that their life here on earth will culminate in everlasting death, everlasting separation from thee. And so, Lord, bless what has happened today to the edification of thy, of thy children. But also, Lord, that the visible display of the gospel would be profoundly blessed by thy spirit to the hearts of those that do not yet know this Christ. Go with us now as we go homeward. Keep us safely. Gather with us again this coming Lord's Day. And Lord, we pray that by grace we would demonstrate at home, in our marriage, in our family, in the workplace, that we have been with Jesus today. We ask it in his name. Amen.